Hey there, everybody. Welcome to this bonus episode of the Higher Ed Geek Podcast, episode number 92 with Kate Kirby, uh, who is the creator of uh, uh, these popular uh, kind of choose-your-own-adventure stories that examine the realities of uh, campus reopenings in the midst of the global pandemic. Uh, so I'm really glad I got the chance to talk with Kate about it and her background, uh, which is super unique. Uh, and it just was a really fascinating conversation. We got into uh, a lot of nuances of uh, the realities of campus reopenings and uh, it's the uh, pandemic and uh, we recorded this before uh, what really uh, this week were kind of the big uh, some of the big players uh, uh, announcing their plans such as Harvard and Princeton and Rutgers so you know it definitely takes a new light as uh, big institutions are committing to uh, either entirely or mostly online uh, semesters or even the entire academic years coming up so really hope that uh uh, you're able to go check out the uh, tools and stories that you, uh, she created and connect with Kate. Keep the discussion going. Yeah, just really uh, great stuff. Check out all the stuff that we talked about in the show notes as usual. Uh, and after this quick message from our sponsor, this is episode number 92 with Kate Kirby. This episode is sponsored by Degree.me, a one-stop college research tool for students. If you work for a college or university, you'll want to learn all about their ability to connect you with the right students at a budget-friendly price find out more, please visit degree.me slash H-E-G. But uh, yeah, I'm really excited to uh, talk with you for the podcast here because uh, I just kind of stumbled across on uh, Twitter, uh, the work that you're doing, putting out some uh, educational resources. And it just seems like uh, your background, you're so kind of uniquely uh, sort of fitted for this moment with your uh, kind of academic interests and work in biology, but also really uh, focused on uh, effective uh, teaching practices and things like that. So I'm really excited to uh, kind of learn more about your story and the work that you're doing. So uh, really appreciate you uh, taking time out for the podcast here. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be able to kind of talk about these resources and my journey and kind of how I got here and how I became interested in these things. Yeah, yeah. And it's just super relevant stuff, obviously, just very timely. So I'm glad we can kind uh, of share all this out with people. But we will uh, start out here as we always do. If you want to give everybody a brief introduction of who you are and your professional journey of how you got to be where you are today. Yeah. So um, my name is Kate Kirby. I'm a graduate student studying biology. Um, I'm almost finished. I'm at Vanderbilt right now. And I got my master's and my bachelor's at Smith College in Massachusetts. I actually got my bachelor's um, in both biology and anthropology. And I think that that has kind of positioned me to uh, explore uh, the world and explore these research interests in, in kind of both a humanistic and also scientific way. Yeah. So I guess, you know, um, it's kind of twofold because I think you do really have, you know, the firm interest in uh, biology and also in, you know, the, you have all these resources on your website about like effective teaching practices and everything. So um, just tell me, I guess, a little bit like what do you enjoy most about these, you know, these different interests that you have and sort of putting out uh, resources and those sort of things. So like what's what's kind of keeping you engaged uh, and motivated in terms of your uh, your current work? Yes. Yeah, so as a graduate student, um, I kind of am constantly juggling both my biology research I study mitochondrial DNA in worms, um, and that's super interesting, and I really enjoy kind of figuring out how things work. Um, but then I also get to explore kind of 
teaching and I get to explore it both in these kind of uh, uh, formal ways in the classroom, but, but also with um, uh, mentoring other grad students and undergrad students in our uh, research lab. And then I also have the opportunity to play around with other interests like making these resources and like this twine story that kind of just happened. And I really enjoy that in academia, I'm able to work on a variety of things at the same time. Um, and that's really useful because experiments fail all the time. And it's really nice that when experiments fail, I can sort of shift my uh, focus and get re-energized by thinking about pedagogy and uh, uh, belonging and access in the classroom. And then when I'm sort of recharged and I'm feeling a little bit better about the research failures, I can go back and try again. And having these multiple interests has really kept me afloat because my research has failed a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, I guess like, you know, if, if there's any sort of context or sort of uh, uh, lead up in terms of like just Broadly, you have like a variety of uh, educational resources in terms of like teaching practices and things on uh, your website, which of course we will uh, link out to. So folks can uh, mm -hmm. check out. But um, yeah, I guess just sort of like what, how did that kind of come about for you just generally of saying one, that you wanted to create these things and two, that you wanted to really kind of, you know, broaden their potential impact of sharing them out widely and those sort of things. Because I guess like have, I know you you work sort of, you know, uh, graduate assistant and teaching assistant and those sort of things. I don't know if that was sort of like the catalyst or um, if you've always had an interest in this and you kind of pursued it uh, more readily. So um, yeah, just kind of the, the the story of it and just kind of I guess, br briefly explaining the, uh, the types of resources that you have that you share out. Yeah. So um, when I was at Smith College, I, um, as I uh, mentioned, I got my bachelor's there um, in biology, but then also my master's. And while I was working on my master's, I developed a teaching laboratory exercise focused on an inversion polymorphism um, on the X chromosome in humans. And so basically what that means is that there are two genes, a larger one and a smaller one, and they can be in one order, large, small, end of chromosome, or they could be in the other order, small, large, end of chromosome. And it's really awesome. Um, and it's actually conserved throughout all eutherian mammals. Um, and my uh, research ad advisor there, Dr. Bob Merritt, uh, wanted me to take this concept that we'd read about in the literature and um, create this teaching a laboratory exercise because students tend to um, identify more and and be more interested in research when it has sort of some connection to themselves. And so I developed this um, teaching laboratory exercise where students swabbed their own um, cheeks and they extracted their own DNA and they figured out which order the genes were in on their own X chromosomes, which was really cool and really fun. Uh, and that was sort of the catalyst uh, years ago for me thinking about wanting to be involved in education. Um, and then when I came to uh, Vanderbilt, um, I worked with my um, advisor, Dr. M M Malik Patel, and we work with worms um, and we study mitochondrial DNA. And so he suggested that I um, develop a teaching lab for um, this 
course-based undergraduate research experience that I was uh, asked to teach. And so the students really explored this open-ended question of how come a, a mitochondrial DNA is inherited only through one parent. Um, and the way that we uh, devised this experiment is that we tried to get inheritance of mitochondrial DNA through the other parent, through the paternal parent in worms. Um, and so kind of all of these teaching experiences led me to think about how do students really like internalize how, how they learn and what kinds of resources work best for students. And so I grew up with pretty poor study skills. Um, I missed out on a lot of what we call the hidden curriculum, how to study, uh, what office hours are, things like that. Um, and so like, I, I never attended office hours until I hosted office hours. Oh. Um, and so no one really ever taught me about uh, metacognition or executive functioning or any of these things. And so because I've been kind of exploring them through my teaching, I realized that other people might need these things spelled out for them just like I did. And can I make them in a way that's really um, engaging and that's also really easy to digest? I know that whenever I want to learn something, I Google it <laughs> and then I click the image tab because I don't want to read a ton of text at first. I want to get kind of like a big overview of what's going on. And once I have that sort of a, a mental image in my head and I have a scaffold for that knowledge, then I want to go back and read more. And so that's kind of the, the reasoning for these resources and the reasoning for them to be kind of these bite-sized pieces that you can print off and put in your binder and revisit every time that you have an exam and you want to uh, think about how to answer questions on an exam or how to be studying better. Yeah, I love it. Because um, I think, yeah, just kind of the idea of like, uh, just being generous with sharing, you know, just in general, just like, hey, here's something, you know, such a low kind of uh, barrier to entry, you know, like somebody can just check it out, download it, use it, you know, and maybe, you know, even like remix it on their own of like, what makes the most sense of how they would prefer to uh, use it and that sort of thing. But, you know, um, just sort of not hogging something that's, uh, you know, worked well for you. And, uh, you know, I always kind of uh, appreciate that sort of uh, ethos and everything. So I guess then, you know, in, in that sort of spirit and that sort of frame of thinking in terms of, uh, you know, sharing out educational resources, a recent uh, tool or uh, sort of uh, resource that you provided was, you know, my brain kind of uh, captured it as this sort of like choose your own adventure uh, stu story for uh, what it's going to be like for a student realistically with, you know, sort of the uh, guidances that we've gotten from many campuses, like what's the reality going to be like for a student to return to campus and be going about their studies and everything, um, which I found just really compelling and really visceral, you know, the hard choices that you'd have to make and the real uh, implications of them. So, uh, and I know too, I, I was just looking that you also have created something that uh, kind of uh, takes on the faculty's perspective as well, mm -hmm. which I think is really uh, just equally uh, valuable and kind of the uh, tough choices there as well. So I guess uh, in a similar way, I'm just like, uh, you know, what inspired you to uh, create and share those out? And yeah, just kind of getting into, I guess, just the broad strokes of like, you know, uh, how you created them and uh, that sort of thing. The story of how the Twine story came to be is kind of a strange one. I think over a month ago, Norm Clark wrote this great piece in Inside Higher Ed about basically a narrative form of what 
a day in the life of a student would look like in in fall 2020 in this um, in this socially distanced classroom because of COVID-19. And I read the piece and I thought that it was super powerful. And I also thought this would not be my experience. This would not be the experience of most of my friends either, that we have other worries, we have other concerns that that are not reflected in this piece. And, and I think that those concerns are really important and really valid. And so um, I wrote kind of like a companion piece to it where I added in kind of these layers of marginalization um, and when that piece did not get picked up, um, I sort of just held on to it and uh, put it kind of on the back burner. And then um, the week that I, I tweeted the, the twine story that I made, I was teaching this intensive STEM pedagogy course for grad students and postdocs at Vanderbilt through the Vanderbilt uh, Center for Teaching. And so the story of how I ended up teaching this class is kind of a unique one. Um, this class had not been created yet. And so not only did I need to teach the class, but I also had to make the class. And the person who was originally supposed to just, um, teach this class got a job and so had to leave kind of uh, unexpectedly and quickly. And so it's kind of a quick turnaround for me to, to create and then um, teach the class. And so um, the week um, that I was teaching that class, I was planning to include twine on Thursday because on Thursday I was going to teach um, the like different teaching um, technologies and strategies. And I really love to use games in the classroom. And so I thought, okay, I'll just show them twinery.org, uh, right? Like I will just show the students or the, 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 the participants in the class that twine exists. And, and so I had the rest of the course already figured out except for Thursday. And so on Monday, the first day of the, this oh, a week long course, a student remarks, um, I bet we could use video games in the classroom. I just don't know how. And, and I think that this really just speaks to kind of who I am as a person and as a creator that I took that as a challenge. And so I said, okay, can I create a twine story before Thursday, it's Monday. I've never finished a twine story in my life. <laughs> At this wow. point in time, I had tried a twine story before. I got overwhelmed by it and I got uh, busy with research. And so I just thought I would come back to it later. And then here, um, this this student remarks, I don't know how. And so I, um, I just kind of got to work. And so I pulled, I, I, I had no idea idea what the twine story would, would be about, but I thought, okay, what can I quickly put together? And I pulled out that companion narrative piece that I had written. And I said, can I make this into a twine, as you're saying, kind of like a choose your own adventure. And so um, in about four hours, <laughs> I put that together. Uh, and so I gave myself four days, but, 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 but I really just kind of uh, uh, buckled down um, and I put this story together and then I, I asked a few colleagues to kind of, uh, read it over and then I just tweeted it out, not really expecting anything to come of it. I really was just, and, and still am worried about what the fall is going to look like for my friends and colleagues who are in these marginalized groups who are going to be forced into the classroom 
and and struggle and and have to put their health at risk every day. And I didn't intend really anybody to look at it, right? It was just kind of, well, I made this for this course. I might as well just tweet it out to others. Um, and then it sort of took on a, a life of its own and it got like this really intense uh, like virality, I guess, that I was not expecting. I didn't even have the right click tracking installed in the Twine story um, to even really know how many clicks I got right at the beginning because I just really uh, was not anticipating this. And I guess, yeah, like the story is that I was just frustrated and worried about the choices that administrators are making based on what I think is not data or not the true lived experiences of individuals, but are really just based on the, like the finances of the uh, university. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's so interesting because I think it plays out the reality that I have to believe certain decision makers haven't really given the appropriate thought to, you know, like they're just sort of enacting policies or sort of making statements and these sort of things and leaving it up to other people to figure out how to implement them or kind of navigate them. So yeah, it's just fascinating to me. And I think uh, as things often go, like, yeah, you didn't make it being like, oh boy, yeah, I'm going to make all this money off this and I'm going to like parlay this into, you know, internet fame, you know, internet fame and fortune, whatever. Yeah. Like you just earnestly thinking about this and creating it, I mean, g- genuinely for your own uh, purposes. And then I'm just being generous, uh, as you kind of noted before, is sharing it out and uh, kind of taking, you know, having people take it as they will. So um yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that I kind of caught it because I think it has kind of cemented for me. Um, and again, I mean, you kind of expressed that obviously you didn't really have any firm purpose or goal in mind when you, you know, shared it out. But for me, like it, it cemented the idea of like, at least for the fall, I personally strongly believe that campuses really need to go all digital and put in the amount of, you know, the appropriate amount of time and resources mm-hmm. into it uh, because that's just we're not out of the woods yet. Like we're really, you know, we're seeing more uh, resurgences and everything. And it just makes a lot more sense. Cause I think too, like that's not any wasted effort, you know, like if you're augmenting digitally the, the work that your staff and faculty are doing, that will continue to give you a return on that investment in perpetuity versus like, okay, what's the value of putting plexiglass all over the place and all that? Like, you don't, you won't need to keep that after this is over. Like this too shall pass eventually when I don't know, but like there's not going to be a need for plexiglass all over the place all the time. But like, create online courses, you know, and train your faculty to, you know, teach effectively online, that's going to serve you well, you know, months and years into the future. So um, I don't know, it really cemented that because there's so much risk and complexity to uh, bringing people back on campus for faculty and students, you know, and those kind of sort of sibling stories that you have. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, I guess, yeah, like, you know, like, what do you hope that people maybe take away or think about it. I mean, again, like you didn't have like, you know, uh, sort of a firm goal in mind originally, but like now that they're out there and you're seeing that the people are responding to them, like, what do you hope people kind of take away or, you know, what do you hope comes from this effort? Yeah. Well, um, I think the, the reality is that the choices that the administrators are making are with the implication that the experience that students will have on campus in the fall is at all comparable to a previous fall experience. And I think that that was a goal with the story is to show that 
this experience will not be like anything that anybody is really anticipating. And so we're, we're not like the options that are, are laid out for us are not totally normal fall, which will be great versus online, which will be terrible. And I think that that's kind of the either or that is being presented right now. And that was part of what this um, story was supposed to get at is that this will not be normal. Like this fall mm-hmm. will not be anything like what has happened in the past. And so holding that up as the thing that we're comparing it to seems and feels really inaccurate. And like, we're making a really false comparison. And so I, I really hope that in immediately administrators are reconsidering these plans for fall. I think that uh, some folks are equating youth with health. And that's just not true that there are lots of young folks who are at high risk for really bad COVID-19 outcomes. And that it's really problematic to focus on maybe some student experiences to dictate these policies that will then be really harmful for other students. Um, And I also point out in the faculty story that individuals might have uh, family members that that are at high risk and that even even if a student is totally healthy, maybe their family member or their their faculty member is not healthy. And so having them um, go into the classroom is definitely risking somebody's health and potentially life. Uh, but I also uh, really think that long term, I, I, I hope that long term administrators are thinking about diversifying those who are at these high levels, uh, making these choices, that we really need perspectives from marginalized folks in those rooms making those choices. We need to make sure that people of color and LGBTQ folks and disabled folks and all intersections and combinations of those identities are are in those rooms making those choices. Um, and I think that one, one way immediately for administrators to do that is to just be listening to um, disabled and LGBTQ and folks of color um, on on Twitter, on the internet, right? Like there have been tons of these um, hashtags cropping up to sort of demonstrate what these lived experiences are are like, uh, like LGBTQ in STEM, like Black in the Ivory, uh, like academic ableism, all of those hashtags, I think, a required reading for administrators and that they should be checking in with those periodically. Um, and and part of why I really hope that that is a takeaway for some administrators is that there were people who tweeted in response to this story, wow, thanks, I hadn't thought about that perspective before. And the fact that there are so many folks who have that response, who genuinely haven't thought about these perspectives, means that we need different people um, in those positions, or at the very least, we need those people to be actively seeking out those perspectives, to be actively uh, looking and listening. And then it's not enough to just listen, but you need to actually um, incorporate the suggestions and the perspectives 
um, into your decision making as administrators um, and like really incorporate what those uh, uh, lived experiences are like when you're making these high level policy choices that are going to impact everyone's experience in the classroom. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like some of the things that were coming to mind, because yeah, like uh, the faculty store could easily also like, you could take a lens of like a staff member and like, you know, and it really is like the whole university community. I mean, I'd say, especially students, like these are the people who are, you know, paying to uh, study, you know, in their program and achieve their academic goals and, you know, all of these things. And I think, you know, it keeps coming up in my mind of, you know, just this sort of adage that I, you know, just I feel like it's like echoing in my head constantly of like, making decisions with your students, not for your students. Yeah. Um, and just like kind of remind yourself of that. And yeah, like who are you bringing into the room to provide commentary? And the fact that like, yeah, it's like if you just looked on Twitter, you'd see a lot of like, you don't even have to like, well, yeah, we're going to build a whole uh, task force and council and have like, you know, meetings on meetings on, you know, whatever. It's like, no, people are, you know, kind of shouting into the digital, uh, you know, void there. Uh, but like, because that's the idea, you know, and I think it probably feels like that if like, you know, a digital void because it's like, is anybody listening? I don't know. I mean, yeah, we keep seeing these statements come out that seem to not be listening. So because um, I think to me, too, like certainly, yeah, like the there's the financial imperative that, you know, these institutions do have to operate within. And I acknowledge and respect that. But certainly like there's so many, again, like the financial resources that are going into putting in plexiglass and all these different things or like testing or, uh, I know like I've seen like, yeah, you know, we're going to like build an infirmary in one of our buildings. Cause like, yeah, probably people <laughs> are going to get sick and we'll have to like care for them. And so I'm like, what? Like, you're not like, that's just seems so bananas to me. And like, uh, the idea that like, also like what you kind of, um, the, the setting that you put in, I know, especially for the student one is, uh, the sort of hybrid model that has, mm. uh, is I think very common. And to me, it's like, cause like you said, there's like the dichotomy of like on campus is like the good and only way online is unacceptable and bad and whatever. And so like, and some of them are like, well, I mean, maybe we'll do hybrid, but I think what we're seeing is like, it's not enough of either, you know, like <laughs> you're, you're doing neither well, uh, versus like, you know, okay, we're committing to, uh, online courses, at least for the fall term. So let's like really do our due diligence to, uh, you know, make those as best as we can since like spring was just this, you know, hurried, yeah. uh, shift to remote teaching. So, um, yeah, that's just like what I'm really going to be bummed about is like that, you know, say the plan goes just as they said it, it's hybrid and all that, that it's just, you know, both the in-person and online will be done uh, poorly. And then I think what some other people are also predicting, especially for certain institutions that like they've laid out this plan and then come, you know, the start of the term, they're gonna be like, actually, you know what, we can't do that and have yeah. to do another hurried sort of shift. Um, so yeah, it's just so interesting. And I think like, you know, yeah, I mean, as of the time of this recording, you have like created these resources that was, you know, reached out kind of immediately when I saw it to try to get this scheduled and uh, <laughs> we're sharing this episode out very soon after we record it. But like, you know, and even prior to that, I think, you know, I, I was seeing all that stuff on Twitter that, you know, this is out there, like the, the realities of people's experiences and their sort of advocacy and those things like it, it's, I don't know, it's been out there, but like, yeah, decisions are still coming out that seem to be. Yeah, ignoring it, which again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to kind of uh, say that like with great malice forethought, you know, that there's like, you know, whatever, it's just kind of uh, blissful ignorance or, you know, they're just not aware. And, um, you know, I am hopeful that things like this and the folks who are sharing their experiences and advocacy and everything, that I hope it does move the needle because, you know, it is, I think like, yeah, the ivory tower sort of uh, analogy definitely, definitely applies here. Well, and, and 
Part of why I wanted to include that faculty perspective and part of why I'm planning to include um, a grad student perspective and a contingent faculty staff um, perspective is because I think that there has also been this kind of pitting groups against each other, that students are really upset that the spring went so poorly. And so they are angry with their professors and they don't want to go um, online because that's their only experience with online education, which, which as you mentioned, was like hurried and rushed and like and nobody had prepared for it. Um, and now the faculty are probably going to end up doing that again, as you mentioned, but through no fault of their own. And I, so the way that I structured the faculty um, uh, story is it's longer and you have less choice. And that's intentional that like the faculty wow. members are going to be um, teaching courses early in the morning and late at night. And so it's going to like their days are going to be exhausting. And the point is to have fewer students in the same location at the same time. But the impact is really going to be on the faculty that they are just going to be exhausted, but they're not going to have the choice to decide if it's online or not online. If it's, if it's 12 people in a classroom or 30 um, and like just kind of structuring the other story in a way that, that, that is kind of less um, engaging almost because you don't get to make as many choices to make the point that faculty aren't getting to make these choices. And that I think that a lot of the stakeholder groups are sort of being pitted against each other and not looking at this as us being in it together, that like all of us need to be working together and protecting each other. Um, and that the way that that choices are being made right now is maybe making it look like the students are all being really selfish and the faculty are all being really selfish. When I think that's not the, the reality, I think the reality is we're all being put into an impossible situation right now. And so how can we work together to make this impossible situation a little bit less challenging? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I guess one more like reflection, just sort of like kudos to you and <laughs> how you like designed it is like that, like besides just like safety, I get, cause it's sort of, I guess a, a byproduct of all the, the safety measures in both stories, like time each day is like going to be the enemy because like mm -hmm. everything will just take longer, you know? And, um, I just was sort of, um, kind of enamored with that too. Cause it's just like, we're only going to have 24 hours in a day, but like, yeah, you know, you forgot your mask, you got to go back or you got to wait mm -hmm. because they got to like, you know, only let so many people in those sort of that, like, that is also just an objective reality. And just like, again, you're sort of enacting these, uh, policies and kind of expecting everybody to uh, navigate them and carry them out. But like, you know, uh, obviously so much risk in terms of, you know, how spaces are uh, navigated, but then even then just sort of like, you know, so many hours in the day and yeah, like, you know, faculty not being able to choose when their classes are or students having to sort of bounce around or wait to get around or um, just have like, you know, a lot more limitations uh, at time. So, well, I guess to, you know, if it's anything that helped with, um, you know, informing, uh, the, you know, the resources that you're creating or um, any other kind of relevant like resources, just, you know, and whatever sort of way you want to take that, I mean, you know, I'm always just kind of excited to hear sort of what's uh, grabbing folks' attention, you know, say uh, mentioned um, some articles and uh, the Twitter threads and uh, hashtags and stuff like that. Um, but anything else that you're like uh, reading, watching and or listening to that you'd want to uh, give a tip of the hat to that we can include in the show notes? I really want to emphasize like 
um, the resources that are available, the conversations that people are having. Um, and then I also just want to note that like have these conversations with the marginalized uh, folks. If you're having conversations with, with marginalized folks about their experiences, like you should pay them for those conversations. Like you should not just be asking for those experiences for free. Um, but the, what I'm currently reading right now, um, and, and maybe, um, this came out a little bit in, in, in how kind of dystopian my faculty story was, but I really like to read sort of like science fiction dystopian kind of novels. Um, I just started Octavia Butler's Kindred, um, I'm like a, a, a barely in it at all, and I'm already hooked. Like I am, I am upset that I am um, taken away from it to do like work things right now because <laughs> I am so enthralled by it. Um, and I would definitely re recommend uh, uh, her work. Yeah, well, that just made me think of um, I have because uh, I'm a big uh, video game player. I have uh, Last of Us Part Two um, just like sitting waiting for me, which I feel like will be my sort of a uh, little dystopic uh, sci-fi adventure. To uh, I, don't know, I guess now it doesn't really feel much like a uh, <laughs> escape, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know something about it. So uh, still very uh, engaging. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, it, it, if nothing else, like all these resources and the voices of people that are giving the time and, you know, they are, you know, uh, just putting it out there publicly, you know, uh, on social media, you know, that's one step like that can just build your foundation of understanding. And then, you know, yeah, like bringing in someone in a sort of formalized consultative capacity if you need to, or, you know, uplifting the folks who, uh, you know are on your campus. All right. You know, that just those people who can speak to the experiences or be advocates for others and those sort of things, I think is uh, so important just as the resources like that, that can be so huge. And that can be like, you know, uh, just make sure that you're going about things in such a more, uh, thoughtful and, uh, considerate way. Um, cause I think, and it just does feel like the, often that it's like, the path forward is clear. It's just a matter of like the willpower to commit to it and see it through and uh, do that. And um, cause I think it really, every time I kind of mentioned to some colleagues and stuff, we're just like, I really think that we, you know, people need to be, you know, going all digital for the fall. There's like, well, you know, you know, housing and dining, you know, it's so much like revenue and all that stuff. And I'm like, I get that, but I mean, it's just <laughs> kind of like short-term thinking to, you know, uh, and then like other people who are like, well, just pull from the endowments and those, you know, like if you have like a budget shortfall and it's, I don't know, there's, there's so much going on. It's just such a like, but I think like you said, and this segues to kind of the final thoughts and those sort of things, like the idea that like, we're going through this all together mm -hmm. and we need to work together and listen to each other and, you know, uh, find those areas to kind of like be diplomatic and compromise and, you know, just like find where like, cause I think it, and this is me, I guess, getting on my soapbox for one second. It's like, <laughs> I think American society, we're really grappling with that idea of like, you know, it's kind of serving yourself and independence and sort of like, you know, all that, like you really have to think outside of ourselves and think of other people. And, you know, it's down to the basic thing of wearing masks and up to the sort of why systematic uh, policies and those sort of things. So I don't know, it, it, it makes me think of just like, you know, yeah, I'm going to go escape into a dystopic video game because I don't know, maybe I just, I'm not as uh, optimistic about that as I might uh, want to be. But, um, you know, 
as you sort of grapple with these things and really try to push for positive change, like, you know, what are you optimistic about if you are seeing, you know, ways in which people are trying to be more uh, inclusive of, you know, those variety of voices or, um, I don't know, yeah, just however you want to take this of like, you know, we always end the episodes on an optimistic note. Mm-hmm. So like what's keeping you optimistic or what, uh, what are you optimistic about uh, for the future? I'm hopeful that the accommodations that have been made like using Zoom for meetings or um, being able to work remotely, um, uh, uh, being able to have conferences via Zoom is great for those who can't afford to travel or who have kids and can't get childcare. Um, And so I'm really, really hopeful that these accommodations will remain um, and that these changes that we figured out it's not that hard to do classes online. Like, really, it's not that hard. Um, it takes a little bit of of thoughtfulness. But, but I argue that you should be that thoughtful for your face-to-face classes as well. Wow. That this, um, that having to be this intentional should be the norm, not just because we are online. Um, but I guess, I guess one thing that... Um, also uh, makes me optimistic about more inclusion is is I'm waiting on my copy of Alice Wong's new book, uh, Disability Visibility. Um, The subtitle is First Person Stories from the 21st Century. And I'm very excited to read about that. And also hopeful that maybe uh, some folks who are outside of the disability sphere might be compelled to sort of read these uh, and hear uh, uh, narrative experiences of what it's actually like, um, because your point about kind of the rugged individualism of the U.S. I think is so true, and and that these experiences of like things taking longer and these policies that are really challenging, and like we didn't even talk about how faculty members who um, don't want to teach face to face have to provide their health d- documentation. Um, oh and how, how upset faculty members are about that, that's the lived experience of disabled folks who want accommodations, right? That we need to share information all the time. Um, and that maybe this will open up uh, folks' eyes to how we shouldn't want to live in a country that's very individualistic. We should want to be a community that's working together all the time. And we should be open to hearing each other's stories um, and how, and, and, and I think how like that storytelling is such a great way to get people to hear each other's perspectives and to change people's minds. And I'm really hopeful that being able to share stories um, through Twine and th- through uh, books and uh, things like that, folks will not want to live in this individualistic society and want to make it more of a community. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, I think we're seeing that, I mean, as we're, uh, all quarantining and just consuming mm-hmm. more stories that like those can be compelling and visceral and really uh, impact people. Um, and I know for me, like, like I said, going through the stories that you help sort of, you know, that you have create on Twine, like, and how, you know, the tough choices that you have to make the real consequences and those sort of things, like that kind of unique way of storytelling too, just like cemented, you know, the feelings that I have. And, you know, I hope that other people can check them out and, respond in a similar way because i mean yeah i mean that, and then that idea too of like that you know you always have to kind of prove it repeatedly and you know sort of if you have the sort of uh situation of like you know something that is 
quote unquote more like invisible that like, you know, it's different when it's like, oh, you know, I'm physically, uh, you know, I have these like physical limitations. So I need these accommodations. And then other times when it's like, you know, you have to kind of yeah repeatedly prove where, you know, something else that you need accommodations and just that having to be such an exhausting experience. Mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many. And again, I just give you so many kudos because, yeah, you really embed those details in a very visceral way uh, in the story. So very much encourage everyone, go check them out. We'll link out to them in the show notes and uh, feel free to obviously to uh, connect with all the other resources that we've mentioned and uh, connect with Keats. Um, but yeah, just thank you so much for, I mean, the work that you've done and for giving a little bit of time to hang out for the podcast here and uh, share all that you did. So yeah, just thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This was awesome. And I really enjoy your um, take on this and your um, like, like a, a, a thoughtfulness about kind of how, like how to be more generous. I think a lot of um, academics want to kind of hold their uh, resources in creations. And I really like the generosity that your podcast kind of um, embodies. Yeah. If I, yeah. Like I can be generous to help other people be more generous or so, you know, absolutely happy to do it. So um, yeah. Thanks again for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode of the Higher Ed Geek Podcast.